Hi, it's Julie Mackin again, back with Speaking of Social Justice Matters. And today we're joined by Nishad Rego from Jesuit Refugee Services. And it is the day after the night before the budget was handed down. So, Nish, a couple of things about the budget that stood out for me. And as someone committed to working with asylum seekers, probably to you too, and that is it looked like there was a big win in the budget last night. Do you want to talk a bit about mm. that? Yeah, there was uh, an unprecedented win, I think, for uh, refugees from Afghanistan on the back of a seven-month-long campaign starting uh, the day that Kabul fell, led by some remarkable leaders in the Afghanistan diaspora. And the win is that the government has announced uh, an additional 16,500 places for uh, people fleeing persecution in Afghanistan over four years. And importantly, those 16,500 places will sit outside Australia's annual humanitarian intake, which will still continue to receive people from other conflict zones like Myanmar and Ukraine and uh, Ethiopia and Mm. Eritrea Mm. and Yemen. Um, And it was what the refugee and asylum seeker community was calling for, at least 20,000. So that brings it pretty close to that, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't 20,000. And importantly, the call for 20,000 was a call for an initial additional Mm. intake. Australia has been in Afghanistan for 20 years and the damage done to that country is insurmountable. There's something like 150,000 applications for protection from people from from Afghanistan to come to Australia uh, at the moment. So 16,500 or indeed 20,000 is not enough, but it is a significant development. The other thing I'd say is that there are about 5,000 refugees from Afghanistan on temporary visas who arrived here by sea in the last... 10 years, their situation has not changed uh, in that the government has has not committed to granting them permanent visas, even though they cannot return back to Afghanistan safely. So, you know, like this has been going on for over two decades, where we, Australia, transitioned from seeing refugees and asylum seekers as a humanitarian issue that needed a, the response of a empathetic strategic and compassionate uh, response. And uh, since the SAS boarded the Tampa in 2001, they've been reframed as a national security issue, Mm. which is then treated in a national security way. Mm. Can you, like it feels like we've had the announcement of New Zealand is willing to take 150 refugees a year up to the level of 450. We see images of young men who have been held in hotel detention for many years being released. Mm. Um, Can you tell us, you know, between Manus Island and Nauru, between the 40,000 kind of people who are referred to as legacy issues, which is, I hope I'm never referred to as a legacy issue myself, Where are we up to in Australia with the amount of people that are here uh, either seeking asylum or as refugees that are still living with precarious uh, conditions surrounding their lives? Mm. So I think one one thing to say is that it's, it's quite remarkable to see a government make 
an announcement on something like like uh, protection for refugees who have been um, detained offshore to make an announcement that gives them protection in New Zealand just before an election. Um, I think that that announcement at this particular time is a demonstration of the fact that public opinion has changed and that uh, people people in the community and civil society have been successful at, at shifting that public opinion. Um, so that's an important point to make. Um, there are still uh, over 100,000 people seeking asylum in Australia today. Most of them have arrived by plane, most of them from Southeast Asia, India, China. We uh, have an overburdened refugee status determination system, one that needs significant additional investment if we are to uphold our, our end of the bargain in terms of treating people who seek our protection fairly. Mm. Um, and whilst people are waiting for their claims to be processed, we need to ensure that they have basic fundamental rights, the right to work, right to Medicare, the right to a financial safety net, and there are too many people who um, don't have those rights and are therefore teetering on um, the brink of homelessness and poverty at the moment. And in my mind, tell me, I, I could have this wrong, but in my mind I think of asylum seekers as people who are in Australia with almost no rights at all, no access to Medicare, to work, to social security or anything like that. And then there are refugees who are living in Australia who are here temporarily on a temporary protection visa, but that do have access to Medicare and the right to work. Is that a fair distinction? Uh, it really depends on how people have arrived. Australia still distinguishes um, between people who have arrived by boat and arrived by other means um, and um, basically provides a gradation of rights and services depending how, on how people right. have arrived. So um, there are yeah. some people who have those rights and there are others who don't. Um, and that's something we need to change. We need yeah. to treat everyone fairly, everyone who's seeking our protection fairly and um, adjudicate their claims in a timely way. <laughs> Just to finish, I'm an old woman and I remember a time when... All the work that JRS does, that House of Welcome, that the Brigidines do, you know, the extraordinary work of civil society in stepping up and feeding and housing and caring for refugees. I remember a time when that was actually done by the public service hmm. because it was considered part of a government's job to fulfil their treaty obligations. And there's a school of thought that says because civil society has actually picked up doing that work, without, of course, anything like the funding that the public service get. There is no kind of pressure on the government of any, any colour at all to once again put our care of asylum seekers back in the public service, in at public administration, with all of the care, you know, and all of the transparency and all of the resources that would involve. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? I, I actually think it's the other way around in that uh, successive governments have progressively reduced the level of investment that um, they uh, provide to supporting people seeking asylum in the community whilst they wait for their claims to be processed, partly um, as a way of 
deterring future arrivals, mm. but also p- partly in order to push people to return back home. And so it's actually been a, rather than about privatization, it's more about deterrence. That's my interpretation of it, yeah, okay. um, and I think civil society has been and diaspora communities have been forced to pick up the pieces. Right. Yeah, there are also elements of privatization, as we know, in certain elements of our um, deterrence regime mm. um, that create all kinds of perverse incentives and entrench these practices. Well, right now further. it costs four million dollars a year to keep one person on Nauru. That's twelve thousand dollars a day. And if we brought them to Australia and put them in six-star hotels, we'd make massive savings. Yeah. Okay, Nish, <laughs> finally, anything to add to that? I suppose there's a lot more work to be done to uphold the rights of people seeking asylum and refugees. And, you know, I think we're... I, I'm eternally thankful to the work of this office and so many others, Catholic and non-Catholic, in, in fighting for the rights um, of, of these people. And we need to continue to do that. Mm. Well, we saw last night, it makes a difference. Yeah, it actually makes exactly. a difference. So, yeah. thanks a lot, Nish. Thank you.